podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Double Century on the 99.94 Podcast Network. William Clark could play. That's actually probably an incredible understatement. Compared to the others in this series who bought cricket, Clark was a technicolor dream of a player. In his 338 recorded matches, he claimed 3,157 wickets at an average of 6.29. These were the only ones where the scores were kept and have actually survived the 150-odd years. Of course, many of these were against weak teams, but even in first-class level, he had 797 wickets at 10.3. He claimed 83 five-wicket hauls in 143 matches. In other words, he took five wickets at a rate better than once every alternate match even allowing for the fact that in those days, first-class cricket was a bit tricky on the batters. This is just an incredible record. And his batting average was 10.35. Not great, but certainly good enough to make him an all-rounder of that era. In fact, he actually started out as a batter who sometimes bowled. He only had one good eye, and he lost his right eye in a sporting accident. His teammate George Parr said that Clark batted by sound, not sight. But Clark was essentially an underarm bowler who spun the ball from the legs of the right-handed batters. He started playing cricket in 1817, a time when round-arm bowling was slowly becoming more popular in England. He made his first-class debut in 1835, roughly when round-arm bowling had just become legalised. The round-arm bowling was quicker than the underarm, of course. It also provided a lot more variety. More bowlers began to switch to it. Even Clark's underarm bowling coach, William Lambert, had been dabbling in round-arm. But Clark was adamant. There have been a lot of great bowls in history, but I wonder how many have ever achieved as much as he did with a bowling style that was essentially dead. And the reason that Clark was so good at this is because he was a brilliant thinker. He understood, like a student of physics, what the ball did in the air, what it did off the pitch, and also, more importantly, why the ball did all those things. He was brilliant at using the slope of the ground, especially at Lord's. He was also a master at figuring out the weakness of opposition batters. He used to arrive at the ground early to study the oppositions in practice, just so he could pick up their weaknesses. Think about that. That is just 100 years ahead of the game. He would play on their minds and then outwit them almost every time. Before you bowl to a man, it is worth something to know what is running in his head, is one of the comments he would often use. Nicholas Felix was one of the best batters of his time, a man with great footwork. He was once batting against Clark, and when Felix tried to step out, Clark lobbed the ball over his head and bowled him. And it was not a fluke. Felix and Clark met many times on the ground, and Clark won almost every time. Felix worked and worked on how to play Clark. He also paid the ultimate tribute. He published a booklet, How to Play Clark. It was light-hearted, but it is perhaps a unique manual written on how to combat an individual cricketer. The book came out in 1852, when Clark and Felix were colleagues. But six years before that, Clark had started something huge, something so big that it makes his cricketing career seem almost insignificant. The man who did not care for a bowling revolution around him was responsible for one of cricket's greatest off-field revolutions. This season is about rich people who decided that they could make cricket better, more about them, or sometimes both. Maybe they wanted to profit from it or just insert themselves into an 11 they had no right to be. But they had the money and cricket was purchased by them for their own wants and needs. Welcome to the people who brought cricket. This episode is about William Clark, a legendary one-eyed cricketer and owner of the first national level franchise in the history of cricket. William Clark was the son of a bricklayer. 
And if you've been following this series so far, you'll know that most of the people that we've talked about so far have come from money. Clark made his own. He followed his father's profession while playing as a batter in Nottingham. He married Jane Wigley, whose mother, Catherine, used to own the Bell Inn in Nottingham. He then became the innkeeper there. When Jane died, Clark remarried, this time a widow called Mary Chapman, who also worked at the Trent Bridge Inn. By then, Clark had been leading the Nottinghamshire cricket team and had also appointed himself as the manager. He now decided to combine his passion and profession. There was a meadow adjacent to the Trent Bridge Inn. Clark laid out a cricket ground on it and erected a close-bordered fence around it. This is the Trent Bridge Cricket Ground. When cricketers came to play there, they were put up at the inn. Unfortunately, at the same time, Clark's marriage had been falling apart. Quarrels were frequent, and to move away from all of it, he took up a job with the MCC as a member of their bowling staff. He moved to London, but more importantly, away from Mary. After spending some time on the MCC payroll, Clark realised two things. The MCC did not pay adequate salaries, and there were many other cricketers who felt the same way. Clark was not merely a great cricketer. The stint with the Trent Bridge Inn had made him aware of his business acumen, and he knew how to make money out of the sport, and he had a lot of experience organising matches. So he decided to form his own team. He called them the All England Eleven, and there had been privately owned cricket teams before this, but nothing on this scale. William Clark founded cricket's first great franchise, and not only that, he was the captain, owner, manager, agent, and talent spotter of the side. He was the franchise's supreme being. This was not that uncommon. In fact, it's the theme of this entire podcast season. But unlike most team owners, Clark was also the main bowler of his side. FS Ashley Cooper calculated the Clark to 2,385 wickets for the All England Eleven alone. And then he obviously went out and recruited some of the biggest names in English cricket. William Lillywhite, Fuller Pilch, George Parr, William Caffin, John Wisden, Nicholas Felix, Alfred Min, Joseph Guy, Julius Caesar. I mean, I could go on and on. It was Julius Caesar the Cricker, of course. Although he probably would have gone after the other Julius Caesar as well, if he had a chance. Clark had a great eye for talent. During an All England match in Bristol, Clark was impressed by the fielding of a 13-year-old local boy at Longstop. He presented the boy with a bat and his mother a copy of William Boland's cricket notes. The young boy, E.M. Grace, and his younger brother, W.G., would also go on to play for the All England Eleven. The interesting thing there is that that was after Clark's death. And they were not the only one. The thing with Clark is that his legacy well outlasted him. But during his life, the All England Eleven did not have a home ground. This was possible because the railways had been expanding in England. Clark took full advantage of this new phenomenon. He played everywhere in Britain, especially in the north. They often went to Edinburgh and Glasgow as well. It was a nomadic team in the truest sense. And remember that while cricket becomes a rich person sport, it didn't begin that way. It was really a children's sport on the street. The first grown-up cricketers were miners and workers and shepherds and priests. It was really only when the nobility brought the game to London that high-quality cricket became more and more confined to the city and amongst gentlemen and players. Oxford and Cambridge, Eton and Harrow, the establishment completely took over the game. But right across England, there were cricket fans everywhere. Now, the MCC was determining everything in cricket, and that meant that the dukes and earls and baronets controlled the narratives, decided the proceedings, and even owned the laws of the game. He was a self-made man, he was a former bricklayer, and he was a professional cricketer. But because he knew that people all over the country liked cricket, and not just the elites of London, he took it everywhere. 
His team would go to the most obscure hamlets and settlements and then show people the best cricketers in England that money could buy. And if the locals could raise enough money to invite them for a match, they would be allowed to play against the All England eleven. be it that their own teams might have 16 or even 22 players because they were from a small village. Sometimes even two or three villages would get together to raise that money. It didn't really matter how poor the pitch was or how last minute the schedule was, if you had money, you could play the All England eleven. And because of this, Clark could use his business acumen to challenge the monopoly of the MCC. It's not actually that much different from today's franchises paying cricketers so much that they forego contracts to play international games. And again, a little bit like what the IPL and other leagues do today, the fans of that era quickly realised in England that Clark's team was far superior to anything that the MCC had to offer. That meant that very soon, the All England eleven was playing significantly more matches than the MCC. As the caravan continued to travel through the lengths and breadths of the country, cricket expanded like never before. This was undoubtedly the strongest cricket team in the world, and also a franchise that was set for financial success. The only way to stop the Clark juggernaut at this point was probably Clark himself, and uh, that's kind of what happened. By 1852, some cricketers in his team were unhappy with the contracts in the same way that Clark hadn't been happy about his contract with the MCC many years before. So John Wisden and a cricketer named James Dean, yeah, Julius Caesar and James Dean, he had quite a team, this Clark. They actually had a split and they formed another team, the United All England Eleven, And it was basically founded on the exact same principles. It was an independent team that understood how Clark's team worked. Remember that John Wisden also had a fairly good business acumen. You may be aware of his book. Now that Clark was the establishment of cricket, he had to meet the rebels that he helped spawn. And they came to an agreement that the new rebel side would never play for or against any team managed by Clark. But just when it seemed like Clark had seen off this threat, another blow followed. Under the pseudonym of A Lover of Cricket, someone wrote a piece in the sporting newspaper The Bell's Life. Amongst other things, a lover of cricket accused Clark of irregular payment. The article caused no huge lasting damage, but it did expose some harsh facts. It was true that Clark did pay the cricketers more money than the MCC, or more than anyone in England over a sustained period of time. But it was also true that he pocketed a substantial percentage of the profits and probably could have given a lot more to the cricketers if he wanted to. And you can imagine the players who were making Clark a very rich man were justifiably unhappy with this. At the same time, professional cricketers around England had realised that they could make a fortune from cricket even without having to bother about the MCC because the railways had opened up more possibilities for them and Clark had shown them the way. And there was no way that the 11 slots in Clark's team were ever going to be able to accommodate all of the talent that was in England. So new teams were inevitable. The Rebels knew they had enough cricketers to assemble some strong teams, but they also realised they could beat Clark by being him. One way or another, they were probably too big to continue to work for him. Of course, Clark could have kept that going a little bit longer had he just paid his professionals a little bit more. Eventually, he would die in 1856, and after that, the All England eleven could finally play against the United All England eleven. Every cricketer involved was a professional. The best players now knew there was money if they turned up for these sides. They also knew that the amateurs of this era were actually a little bit weaker. This was in the middle of a 25-match run between the gentlemen and players contest. The players won 23, drew one, and lost one. To put it another way, the rivalry between the two private franchises was beginning at a time when England professional cricketers were way better than the amateurs. In 1859, when a representative English cricket team crossed the Atlantic for the first time, it consisted of 12 men, six from each of the franchises. 
So every clash between these two sides was at the highest level of cricket in England. These were essentially international matches, even if they were two franchise sides. And the crowds came out knowing that these were the best players. Up to 10,000 people would turn up for these matches. Had it not been for Clark, neither team would have been formed. But I think more importantly, had it not been for Clark, Lords would have continued to underpay players. They would have continued to keep the game as London-centric. Clark exploded it all around the country. There is no doubt that he expanded cricket from a private club sport to the British national game. John Arlott once wrote of Clark, he was the first man to make a fortune out of cricket. He was also the first to see that there was a fortune to be made out of it. And just before we finish, I just want to mention something else. As we've talked about, Clark was a Nottinghamshire man, so it was only fitting that the redoubtable cricket author Peter Wynne Thomas wrote Clark's most definitive biography for the Association of Cricket Statisticians and Historians in 2014. On the cover of the book, you will see a black and white photograph of the underarm bowler Clark holding a cricket ball as high as possible, but below the waist level, the way he used to do it. But the rest of the cover is bright pink, which is very unusual for a book on a 19th century player. This was not a randomly chosen colour. The All England eleven used to play cricket in white shirts and trousers, but the trousers had polka dots on them. And not just polka dots, bright pink polka dots. There is no doubt that Clark changed cricket in a positive way, even if it was mostly for his own gain. The players were paid better than before, but he still made the most of it. But he did help wrestle the game away from the elite and took it far and wide beyond London. And let's not forget, he gave us one of the greatest cricket grounds in the world, Trent Bridge. He saw things different because he's not one of the old grey guys who came from the elites running the sport as a private gentleman's club. He was a cricketer and a businessman. And as it turns out, he was quite brilliant at both. And for a little while, he let the market decide on cricket and the best players got paid more money. He was a franchise guy 150 years before we even thought about that concept in our sport. But most importantly, in a sea of beige men in our sport, he was bright pink polka dots. Double Century is a podcast on the 99.94 network. You can download our app via the show notes or look for us on social media to see all the podcasts and audio we produce. If you prefer your podcast ad free, you can support us on Patreon to get that version. You can find the link in the show notes. Double Century on 99.94 is a podcast narrated, produced, and co-written by me, Jared Kimber. Abhishek Mukherjee is the main writer, and Nick McCorriston edits, mixes, and co-produces the show. Sports Social Podcast Network.